0: look forward to our look at Acts chapter 4. If you want to start turning there, over the last few months we've seen the earliest stages in the development of the New Testament church. And in Acts 1-2 through we saw the result of God powerfully working through His Spirit to bring conviction of sin and repentance. Thousands were added to the church as a result of that. And then we saw how That community of saved believers interacted. They met daily, not only in the temple to proclaim the good news, but also in one another's homes to worship and fellowship together. There really is never a dull moment in the book of Acts. There's constant action and events and interesting things happening. Last week we saw what happens when God blesses a church. With spiritual growth and unified worship, that church faces persecution. When we boldly proclaim God's word and model Christ's likeness, we understood that the leaders of this world, together with those described in ephesians six twelve as the principalities and powers of the heavenly places, a spiritual hosts of wickedness, all of these oppose the church in its effort to glorify God. So I hope the lesson that we learned last week is that we must see persecution. Not as opposition, but as opportunity, right? In fact, persecution is often a confirmation that we are living out the gospel. And as I mentioned at the very end last week, if Peter had been intimidated by the questioning of such powerful people and groups that opposed him, he would have said as little as possible. He would have hoped to be released to get back to the fellowship of the other believers, Uh, and stay under the radar. But he wasn't intimidated. He was a servant of the living God. He knew he had the greatest message in the world to deliver. And so what he thought instead was, in all my life, I have never had a chance like this. Look at this audience. The priests, the captain of the guard, the Sadducees, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law, Annas, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others, I will never do better than this. Why, if we put on a great advertising campaign, we could never have gotten all of the nation's leaders to come. But here they are, and therefore it must be a divine appointment. So remember that. Remember to see opposition as opportunity. Well, today we see what happens when the church members, instead of being filled with the Holy Spirit, instead become complacent and self-centered. Let's stand as we read together. We'll read the the first part of this passage that starts with Acts 4, verse 32. We'll read through verse 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for all of these interesting things that are taking place in the book of Acts. They, many of them do resemble things, challenges that we face, lessons that we need to learn as a church today, 2,000 years later. I just pray that you would help us to learn them, help us to have attentive minds and hearts, willing to accept any of the challenges, exhortations that you bring us from your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Luke did not have to give us a picture of nearly ideal harmony as he does here in chapter 4, because he already gave us in chapter 2 a very similar description of a united body of believers, even a body that shared things with one another. So we need to understand that Luke isn't being repetitive and that there is a reason why he tells us about a man named Barnabas. We always think of Barnabas as the model of encouragement, which of course he was. Named Barnabas, as the passage says, means the son of encouragement, and we will learn and see him more later. And we know him as an encouraging man, a supporter. However, Barnabas also models a sacrificial attitude here. In chapter 4, He singled out as one of the church members who owned a piece of land and sold it. And he brought the proceeds to the apostles to distribute as they thought wise, especially among those that were in need. And we shouldn't read this passage as saying that every member sold everything that they possessed and converted it to cash. If that were true there would have been no longer any houses to meet in, right? Additionally, the verbs in the section are in the Greek, imperfect tense, which if you know anything about the vocabulary of the Greek language, you know that they have two types of past tense uh, verbs in particular that are used the most. One is the aorist, which is a simple past tense. An action was done, it was completed imperfect means that it kept being done over and over again. It it didn't quite ever finish. That's why it's not perfected. It's called imperfect. And so what what we're learning about in this passage in chapter 4 is that the people who owned properties were selling them. Imperfect tense. They sold them over time. They continued to sell them. Meaning they didn't just do it once for all. They didn't just sell everything that they had but rather they sold things as needs arose within the church. The New International Version actually captures this well when it translates verse 34 as saying, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. So what we need to understand from this is that there were members like Barnabas who sold portions of their estate to assist those of the church that were in need. And by the grace of God, people were able to separate themselves from the attachment to their possessions. They placed their focus on the needs of God's kingdom. And we'll continue to see this later in the book of Acts. In Acts 6, for example, some widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And and the elders took action to make sure that their needs were taken care of. In Acts 11, a famine relief is undertaken to provide for the church in Jerusalem. So someday we will die, and the good we can do with our possessions will end at that time. And it makes sense to to make sure that we use them well now. But that's really not ultimately the point of this passage. As glowing a chapter 4 is of the description of a church as a whole and of of Barnabas' personal character, the church wasn't perfect. In fact, there is no perfect church. Someone once told Charles Spurgeon that as they were leaving his church, they were trying to find a better one, and Spurgeon, who was a very witty guy and sometimes more blunt than people dare to be today, said, well, when you find it, please don't join it because you'll ruin it. (laughs) So the, the first church was not perfect. And sadly, as we read in the next chapter, there were two members who were not at all like Barnabas. Outwardly, they seemed to be. Outwardly, they tried to portray themselves to be the same as Barnabas. But inwardly, they were of a quite different character. And so we read in the first two verses of chapter 5, but, meaning in contrast to what we just read, this great description, glowing description of the early church, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, we're not told the entire story about Ananias and Sapphira, but we do know that they acted as if they were imitating the example that was just described of Barnabas. They sold also one of their possessions, like the others, but they were not honest about the situation. They looked at the proceeds, saw how nice they were, kept back some for themselves while giving the rest away. And we'll see in just a moment that keeping some of the profit was not wrong. That wasn't the issue. The important point is that they pretended to give all of the proceeds to the apostles. And I think we need to ask ourselves if we ever imitate the example of of Barnabas or the example of Ananias? Do we try to create the impression that we are a person of prayer when we're not? Do we make it look like we have everything together but we don't? Do we promote the idea that we are generous when in fact what we do, give to others, is hardly a sacrifice? The question applies to all of us. As a pastor, when I urge you towards deeper devotion to God, am I implying That my life is an example when it really isn't. Those are all questions that we have to ask. And so that we don't misunderstand the text. As I said, Ananias' sin was not withholding the money he received from the property. Because if you look at what Peter says, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So what he's saying by that is that Ananias never lost personal ownership of his property. And he could do with it what he wanted. There was no command of God which said everyone had to sell parts of or all of their belongings. The important issue was the fact that Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. They deceived the church. The problem here in this passage, friends, is hypocrisy and lying. It's not property ownership. It's not somehow trying to dis, you know, establish an argument that the church should be a socialistic entity. That's not what this passage is about. Ananias was a member of the church. And falsehood destroys the fellowship. It mocks God. And what makes the story even more dramatic is that the name Ananias means God is gracious. God is gracious. That's what Ananias means. And Sapphira means beautiful. In verse 4, Peter asks, why is it you have contrived this deed in your heart You've not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes, uh, in the, especially the first several times that I read that verse, chapter 5 always shocked me. And perhaps it troubles you. Maybe you're tempted to think God overreacted in this case. After all, how many times have you lied and, and acted like a hypocrite, Right? God didn't strike you dead. didn't strike me dead. A.W. Tozer once said that what we think about God is probably the most important thing about us. And if that's so, then that's probably indicative of the fact that our generation today is in serious trouble. Even though opinion polls say that Americans are very religious, only 10% say that their belief actually impacts or influences the way that they live. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, wrote a good book called The Holiness of God. And in it, he suggested there is one lesson that God wants us to learn from this particular chapter, from Acts 5, and that is that God is holy. Holiness means set apart. It means otherness. It means that God goes beyond all that we are able to imagine. It is so fundamental to God's character that as Sproul wrote the word holy, Calls attention to all that God is. It reminds us that his love is a holy love. His justice is a holy justice. His mercy is holy mercy. His knowledge, holy knowledge. His spirit is the Holy Spirit. An helpful example of what he means by that is, I think, in the Old Testament, the story of Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu. Leviticus 10 tells us that they did not follow God's instructions when they gave an offering at the tabernacle. We're not told how often they were disobedient. We're not told what they were like in their personal lives. All we're told is this very short episode that they offered what the Bible describes as being profane fire to the Lord, and apparently did not think that that was very serious. You know what profane means? It means to take something from a higher level and bring it down to a lower one. And Nadab and Abihu's offering attempted to take God from his exalted level of holiness and bring him down to their own casual level. And guess what happened? The Bible says that God caused the fire that they were offering to essentially explode out. And it consumed them. They died. And if you've ever wondered if God takes seriously how we worship him or you're tempted to think that everyone can, can have their own rules and serve God in his or her own way, Leviticus 10 should change your mind, my mind. God gave the Israelites very clear direction. He told Moses and Aaron how to worship him. And what happens when we disregard that? What happens when we profane God? Is it simply my will against God's? Is it simply he takes what we give him? Has he requested that we be holy or has he commanded that we be holy? Well, here's the question. If the magnitude of sin is is really determined by the greatness of the one against whom that sin is committed, Then Aaron's sons, when they offered profane fire, were what? They were profoundly sinful, weren't they? Their disobedience was a great arrogance against God. It said their will was more important than God's command. And it threatened, as models in that congregation, it threatened to disrupt the entire future of the church of the Old Testament. And so God judged them. And how do you think Aaron reacted? The Bible says that he was displeased, which is probably an understatement. Probably furious or outraged or profoundly, sorrowfully disappointed in what had happened would be the case. He had, after all, dedicated his entire life to the service of God. He had been placed in that position because his brother lacked the self-confidence and courage to go and be God's spokesman as God had directed him in the early book of Exodus as we read in Exodus chapter 3. Instead, Moses said, I can't talk. And then God said, well, then I will have your brother be your spokesman. And so Aaron, Aaron was the spokesman. Now, you know, what thanks does he get? God executes his sons for what probably seemed like a minor infraction of the rules. But listen to how Moses counseled him. He says, Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And so Moses reminded his brother of the original consecration of the priests who had been set apart for this sacred task, solemnly charged with the precise requirements of their office. They had the privilege of ministering before a holy God, of showing honor to him. In fact, in Exodus 39, God had described the altar as most holy. So when Nadab and Abihu performed the offerings upon the altar as they want, rather than as God commands, they were acting in defiance of God's instructions, inexcusably profaning God. And on that occasion, God's judgment was swift. You know, one of the things I like about Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, I encourage you to read it if you've not read it before. He picks various different episodes from the Old and the New Testament of times where God acts in this way. These momentary glimpses of the holiness of God that kind of unseat people or or act in ways that surprise us, whether it's Isaiah seeing God upon the throne or Peter uh, saying to Jesus, depart from me for I am a sinner. These unexpected reactions of people to to the holy sovereignty of God. If it weren't for his book, I probably would never have looked in depth at the story of Uzzah. And that's probably, if you've read the book, where some of you learned that story as well. The the man who touched the ark to try and keep the ark from falling off the ox cart. There's something about, though, that story that ties him to Aaron's sons and with Ananias and Sapphira. We won't take but more than a minute on this, but look at this passage in 1 Chronicles 13. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Labohamath, to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all, the, all of Israel went up to Bala, that is, to Kiriath-Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned upon, above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. Right? It seemed all the right things. A brand new cart built just for this occasion from the house of Abinadab and Nezah and Ayo who were driving the cart. But were they supposed to put it on a cart? No. What's the connection with Nadab and Abihu? They did not do what they were told. They did not worship God in the way that they were supposed to. They were supposed to have the Kohathites come and carry the ark on poles. It doesn't matter that they built a new cart or had a new cart or that they had strong oxen that they were going to lead. It So David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with new songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark because the oxen stumbled. Again, things that we think common response, what we would do in this place. This is God's holy ark. Can't let it come off and slide off the the ox cart. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark and he died there before God. And just like Aaron, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah and that place is called Perez, Uzzah to this day. And it seems again confronted with the harshness of God. Why should he be struck down for this instinctive reaction? Well, Sproul points out the answer is that Uzzah as I say, Koathite had been schooled in the specific instruction about how the ark was to be carried. Under no condition was anyone ever to touch the ark. Once it was constructed and dedicated to God, it was holy. And friends, this is not about, well, you know, just this was an ancient people who didn't realize or understand, but didn't you realize that the ark was this great capacitor was storing up all this electric charge? You know, everybody that tries to imagine what, what really happened with the ark, right? You have all these explanations. How could it be that a person just touching the ark would suddenly be, you know, killed? Well, because it was storing up electricity the way it was with gold over cedar and all that kind of... No, that's not the point. The point is that God is holy. The point is that the ark should never have been placed in an ox cart. And Uzzah assumed that those instructions, like Nadab and Abihu, that they could be ignored because it was about to fall on the ground. And to quote Sproul one last time, he says, Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. God did not want his holy throne touched by that which was contaminated by evil, that which was in rebellion to him, It was man's touch that was forbidden. That's a great insight. And why I wanted to take the time to to quote that for you from the book. You see, in each case, Nadab and Abihu before the altar, Ezzel with the ark, Ananias and Sapphira with the proceeds of their sale, men and women acted with presumption and arrogance. And God does not want his holy name or character to be contaminated by the evil of man's presumption. God is not obligated to sustain our lives. Remember, even our breath is a gift of God. We are a debt to him. We are upheld by his authority and the word of his command. We are told to walk in obedience, to bear witness to the holiness of God. We are told to be his image bearers, to reflect his character and to be his ambassadors. And when we exalt ourselves, when we profane God, when we act the hypocrite, we defy God's holy authority. And in our rebellion, we set ourselves in opposition to the one to whom we owe everything. And then we say, because we are image bearers, because we are ambassadors reflecting his character to the world. What we really describe to the world is, this is how God is. He's careless. He's covetous. He's bitter. He's a thief. He's a slanderer. He's an adulterer. And so the issue is not why does God punish sin, or even why does he punish some sins and not others. I think the best question is, why does God permit the ongoing rebellion of man? Period. I mean, after all, what prince or king would allow a continually rebellious people? The Bible tells us that God, though, is patient, that he's long suffering, that he is storing up wrath against those who do evil. In fact, he is here here's again another point. He is often so slow to anger that when his anger does erupt, as it did with Ananias and Sapphira, we are shocked and we are offended. We forget so quickly that God's patience and kindness are intended to lead us to repentance. But instead of thanking Him for that patience, instead of being grateful that God didn't strike me down in my hypocrisy, in my lying, in my sin, coming humbly to Him for forgiveness, too often we use that grace as an opportunity to become more bold in our sin. For all of those reasons, hypocrisy is a destructive force within the community of God's people. If Satan can't destroy the church from without, how is he going to destroy us? It's going to be from within. Hypocrisy is God's people lying to one another, it leads to a false unity of the church. And when it is exposed, it has the danger of creating great division. Friends, we cannot afford to be a superficial people. We can't afford to be a false and a phony people. We have to be a genuine, sincere people who confess our sin, who recognize that we need one another people who are vulnerable enough to expose our weaknesses and our strengths. And so if the primary reason that Luke writes the book of Acts is to record for us the work of God, the Holy Spirit, among a growing community of believers, and the establishment of the church spreading throughout the world, he also wants to inform us, hey, watch out for these things. Watch out for what happens when hypocrisy hits. And so this is a warning. One commentator writes, the story of Ananias is to the book of Acts what the story of Achan is to the book of Joshua. In both narratives, an act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of God's people. Maybe you've never connected those two things together, Ananias and Sapphira and Achan in the book of Joshua, but it's a great comparison Because you know how the people of God crossed over the Jordan and they were ready. They were the faithful second generation ready to take on Jericho and they did. And they were successful because they were faithful to God all except for one person and his family. Achan Kept back for himself some of the things that were all to be devoted to God. The entire city and all of its possessions were, in essence, like a first fruits, like a tithe, if you will, of what God was going to give the people out of Israel. And in Joshua 7 1, it says, But the Israelites acted unfaithfully. Well, really, it was Achan and his family that acted unfaithfully. But look at how God takes the sin of Achan and the entire people are affected. It says, Achan, the son of Carmi of the tribe of Judah, took some of them, but the Lord's anger burned against Achan and his family? No, burned against Israel. And as a result of that crime, Israel loses its next battle against a much smaller opponent. And when that sin is later discovered of Achan, like Ananias in our text, Achan is punished by being put to death. The Lord will not be mocked. He will not tolerate sin. I think those who say that the God of the Old Testament is, you know, a that's often a vengeful and violent God, but the God of the New Testament is full of grace and never would do anything like that. They have never read Acts 4 and 5 because this is exactly the same thing that happened. It's the same God. He is the Holy One, and He will not allow deceit and hypocrisy to destroy the church. So friends, as our church grows, we too must not presume upon God's grace. In fact, the demonstration of God's holiness should and will have the opposite effect. It will cause reverent fear among us. Acts 5.11 says, as a result of God's judgment. Here's the good thing about the church at this time. They didn't all rally together and come grumbling to the apostles going, what is God doing? This is so unfair and unjust. Instead, it says, great fear came upon the church, upon those who heard of these things. Similarly, after the incident with us, 1 Chronicles 13 says, David was afraid of God that day, saying, how can I bring the ark of God to me? So it was not a how dare you, like some equal to an equal, Right? As if the people had the ability to determine justice, It was, "Ah, I forgot. God is holy. What are we going to do? And we know Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, this is what happens. The people wisely recognize, wait, we can't tolerate hypocrisy. We can't afford to be like this. And what ends up happening, at least in the scriptures, what we learn is that fear then, a right fear, a reverent fear, leads to the fruits of the Spirit, like joy and peace, love, contentment, and so on. John Murray once said, The fear of God, that's a good quote, in which godliness consists is the fear which produces adoration and love. It is the fear which consists in awe, reverence, honor, and worship, and all of these on the highest level of exercise, and this is my favorite part, it is the reflex in our consciousness of the transcendent majesty and holiness of God. I like that phrase. The reflex in our consciousness. If you're wondering what that last sentence means, some of you have been to the doctor's office, you've sat on the doctor's table. Last time I was at the doctor that I can remember we were adopting Hope and Caleb and, and had to do a required physical. But that was one of the tests that they did with the little rubber mallet. And I'm an ordinary person, and so I did my best to try and keep my leg still on the table. And what happened when he hit? You couldn't, right? It was an automatic reflex, a twitching of the leg when he hits that in the right place. It's supposed to show that, it, that your leg's operating properly. Well, what happens when the hammer of God's majesty and holiness hits the soul of a true child of God? That's what John Murray's talking about here. He says that the reflex, the automatic reflex in response is awe, reverence, and childlike fear. Not one that cowers, but one that frees us from relying upon ourselves and remembers God is holy. He is great. He told Job that he laid the foundations of the earth and determines its measurements. We get so caught up in the busyness of life, we can come into church on a Sunday morning and completely forget that God laid the foundations of the earth. We get so busy with all the things that we do, whether it's directing people in our workplace, We're putting things together. We kind of think that we're the masters of our own lives and then we come in and we are reminded by God's word that he made the clouds as a garment, that he gave the horse its strength, that the eagle mounts at his command, that his judgment is pure. We go about our busy lives and we deal with dishonesty and lack of integrity and disrespect and constant worldliness around us all the time. And then we are reminded by his word, he is adorned in majesty and splendor. He is righteous and true. And we must be led the reflex of our consciousness. If we are a true child of God, must be, who is like our God? Who is like our God? And the moment that we recognize that, then we turn right back around and we go, and I am sinful. I am blessed just to continue to be here. And then like David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joe, Peter, and so many others, we ultimately say, woe is me, I am undone. Depart from me, Lord. I am a sinner. And that's when God says, no. That's, that's where I want you to be. I dwell with the person who is contrite and hard, who is broken and hard over their sin. I want you to be my servant. That's where he takes that colony." he sears the lips as a way of symbolizing purification and for Isaiah and saying, go out and be my servant. Now you're ready to actually be of use for the kingdom. It's because that fear is the beginning of wisdom. It isn't wisdom in and of itself, but it is the foundation for wisdom. You will never be wise, let me just say this, you'll never be wise in the Christian life if you do not have a foundation built of a right view of God. It's not just about being book smart. It's not just being about around the church for years and years and years. We are in the right frame of mind. It makes us teachable. Isaiah became teachable. Now God could use him. And when Peter told Jesus, depart from me for I'm a sinner, Jesus says, no, now you're actually teachable. Before you were prideful and self-confident telling me it wasn't the right time to let down the nets for the fish. But now I can make you a fisher of men. And that's what happened to the people of the first church. They feared the Lord. They became teachable. They were rightly reverent of God. And so Acts 5, verses 11 and 12 says... And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. And we know that that's a good thing because the very next verse says, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles and they were all together in Solomon's portico. The result was greater unity. The result was the powerful working of God in the church. And I pray that for this church. Don't forget we this is not a social club. It's not just a gathering for fellowship. It's not just a even in of itself a family of friends that we look forward to seeing every week. We serve a holy God. And all that belongs to us our lives ourselves, our devotion, even our possessions ultimately has been given to us to steward well for God's kingdom. Let's not take God for granted. Fear God, acknowledge him, and may God's justice root out the sins of our church, particularly the sins of hypocrisy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of Acts and the story of Ananias and Sapphira. It is shocking But then as we look at some of the other shocking stories of your word, we we, we realize there is a common and consistent theme. You will be honored amongst your people. You will be worshipped in the way that you have set out, for you are holy. And Lord, I just pray that we would learn from these lessons ourselves, that we wouldn't take away from this, oh, this is another, another type of passage where It looks like people have to give everything to the church. That's not what this is about at all. But it's about who you are, Father. It's about what you desire for unity in the church. You do not want us to be a people who are hypocrites. But you want us to be a people who recognize that everything we have has been given to us by you. And that we need to be ready to use it for your kingdom. Whatever that means. Whenever that's needed. But Father, more than anything else, you desire for us to recognize that you are holy. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.